Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Why, hello there and welcome to a uh, sunny but blue Monday in Pittsburgh, PA because of a certain football game. I got to tell you, I didn't even watch after the half. I... It's a, it, and I didn't watch much of the first. I, I want to tell you it's a wonderful place to get to <laughs> where you don't care much anymore at all. I mean, I always will root for them and the Packers, but I just don't care anymore. There's so many negative associations with the game, especially the the violence of it, that I'm just, I don't enjoy it as much, and I ain't alone. And then there's the ho- horribleness of the NFL itself. So the good news is if you get yourself into that, I really don't care much. Um, you can't have your Mondays ruined because <laughs> um, it's a beautiful, sunny day in October, you know. Whatever, for those of you who are mourning or upset, uh, it's okay. I also understand that it can be a distraction from the usual things we're upset about. (laughs) So that's, in that regard, it's always been um, a great, a great thing, Uh, football, a great escape and uh, release. All right, so that's all I'm saying about that. Um, I went to an event Friday night, Friday evening, at the University of Pittsburgh, where uh, my friend Jean Marie Laskus was being honored as her book came out. This is the book she was on the show. This is a book about the the letters that Obama read. 10 of every night of his presidency, 10 letters chosen uh, by this hardworking group of interns and volunteers mostly in that, that sorted through every letter that any citizen wrote to the president. All were read and 10 made their way to to him, uh, where the last thing he would do before he went to bed was sit in the treaty room and read these letters. One can only imagine the current occupant of the White House doing such a thing. But it was uh, an extraordinary event. It was extraordinary. Let's not get overwhelmed. But... uh, Three of the people who had written letters to President Obama were f- were there, and they all read the letters that they had written to the president. One letter was from a woman struggling with cancer and being just devastated, not just by her fight with that disease, but also by her insurance company. So... It was, it was a letter explaining how the way 
the insurance system worked in the country was making her fight for her life harder. That woman's letter was the letter that Obama got that he was so moved by that he had it framed and hung on the walls of uh, the White House. And uh, Jean Marie, when she went to visit uh, Obama in his post-presidency uh, in the office he now has, um, she said there it was. He brought that letter with him. And it was getting that letter that just and seeing it all the time that just redoubled always his his determination to see the Affordable Care Act through. So she was there and a woman who was a heroin addict and who had written a letter to him was there and the res her response from the president changed her life. She's clean. She now helps other addicts in, in jail and other programs and she was such an impressive woman. And then it was the last one, a man who wrote Obama a letter and it was one of the ten letters Obama read on his last day as president. And this guy was a congenial looking, plump, bow-tied, gray-bearded, bespectacled man. And when he read his letter, which I do remember from the book, he was writing the president to apologize to him. He didn't vote for him. He didn't like him. And he said in his letter how he spread, you know, he talked about his dislike of him. He was one of the people that, you know, just was... hating on Barack Obama the whole time he was in office. But what he told the president is that little by little, and strangely, what started to turn him into considering that he was wrong was the president's sense of humor. He said, you know, I'd see him at the correspond. He, he told the president, I see you at the, no, I think this is later he told us this. But he was talking about how he came to see and he told Obama that you are an honorable man, that you are a good man, and that although I don't agree with you politically, about much of anything. I was wrong to have ever said a negative word about you. 
and he talked about being a Christian and how it was important for him to come to terms with his actions and his uh, misplaced judgments of this man. And as this guy read his letter, <laughs> I began to weep. I There was a ton of people there. We were all standing. And I couldn't. I couldn't stop. Two people who I didn't even know offered me Kleenex. <laughs> Tears were just running down my face. I and I I was thinking to myself, really, what is and and I I understood. I mean, I've been so close to tears for so much of the last few weeks. And somehow this man, this other honorable man talking about and reading his letter, apologizing to Barack Obama, even though there was nothing different about how he felt politically. There was something so, it reminded me of how people, good people, comport themselves, how they act. And certainly being reminded of Obama's decency and open-heartedness and given what we have now it was I guess understandable that I was I don't think anyone there necessarily thought why is that woman crying because I, I, I think a lot of us are just wanting to weep now so since I last talked to you a lot has happened, as is always the case in this new time. Um, and uh, lo and behold, the vote was put off, and the FBI is uh, investigating. <laughs> but we find out that the FBI in this investigation is working for the White House. This is not a criminal investigation. This is a background, a reopened background investigation into a nomination made by the White House and consequently the White House has told the FBI what it wants to know. And you can bet that's next to nothing. The point man for the White House with the FBI is none other than the president's counsel, Donald McGahn. Donald McGahn is also the point man for getting Kavanaugh onto the court. Stop and think about that. 
So there is this FBI investigation. However, the man that the FBI is reporting to is the same man whose job it's been to shepherd Kavanaugh through the process and get him on the court. So it could well be that Senator Flake unintentionally has given the Republicans a way out and given Kavanaugh a way on to the court. Because if the FBI is prevented from following their leads, and interviewing other people, then it could well be that they will not uncover anything uh, that would prevent Republicans from saying, well, you see, <laughs> so that is very troubling. Is very troubling. Uh, and I, it could well be after the kangaroo court, it could be a, uh, a whitewash. I just, I was feeling hopeful on Friday and now that I'm aware of how this thing is actually playing out, I'm a lot less uh, sanguine. What I don't understand are two things. I don't understand how the Republicans on the committee can say that they found Dr. Blasey Ford credible, which means they found her believable, and then how they can disregard what she has told them about the man that they intend to vote for. I don't understand how those two things are possible. If you find her cre credible, even the president said so. So if they find her credible and yet they still vote for Kavanaugh, what they are saying to her and all women is we heard you not a terrible thing, terrible thing. Uh, but uh, excuse us, we've got work to do. I don't understand it. Here's the other thing I don't understand. How does a nominee for the Supreme Court raise his hand and swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth and then sit down and just blatantly lie to the members of the Judiciary Committee, which he did more than once. Everybody knows he lied. He lied. If you don't think he lied, then I, you really are living in um, an alternative universe. 
He lied about what all of those despicable, disgusting sexual references were on his yearbook page. I keep talking about loss of innocence. Well, I lost a little more because now I know what a devil's triangle is and now I know what boofing is and now I know what FFFFF is, although I didn't learn that from Judge Kavanaugh because when he was questioned, and I think it was by Senator Whitehouse, about what those things meant that he had put on his senior page in the yearbook. He lied. Everybody knows he lied. There's not a person who went to that prep school who doesn't now know he lied under oath. The Devil's Triangle is not a drinking game. Never was, never will be. It is two men having sex with one woman. Strange, isn't it, given that there was an attempt at a Devil's Triangle in Dr. Blasey Ford's story. She was locked in that room with two men, two boys. Boofing, which he said was about farting, flatulence, that is not true either. It does have to do with the anus, but it has to do with anal sex. That's what it refers to. I'm forgetting some of them. Oh, FFFF. He said it was a friend who, in before he would say the F word, would like... <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what the F's are, but I've heard, sir, but generally speaking, people who know what it is say it's something like, excuse me, find them, feel them, fuck them. Because after you fuck them, you discard them. I'm trying to think what the... I don't know. But that's what it means. It's, again, about assaulting, using women. All of these things that he put in there are about that. Now, granted, you could be a 17-year-old boy. Oh, that's the other thing. He said... It was legal for the seniors to drink because 18 was the drinking age. That is a lie, too. There isn't any 18-year-old who doesn't know exactly when the drinking age <laughs> uh, kicks in. You know, that's one of the joys of turning 18. Used to be. Because I don't know if it's 18 anywhere anymore. But the fact is, when he was a senior, it was 21. But again, these are lies under oath. 
are they not? And the fact that this guy who wants to sit on the highest court in the land lied through his teeth, felt he could, and in fact, he could be right, felt he could swear to tell the truth and then sit down and lie to these senators and still know that they're not going to call him on it. Man, if that ain't a certain kind of elitist white male privilege, I don't know what is. There are other lies that he told about his drinking, obviously. And I think we got a picture of what a mean drunk he must be. Because the meanness he exhibited, that sort of crazed-looking rage. Looks like a mean drunk. It sure don't look like no justice of the Supreme Court. No way. That's it. Thank you, David. See, David knows him. Find him, feel him, fuck him, forget him. That was it. That's what FFFF means. And that's what Brett Kavanaugh knows it means. And that's why he put it there along with Devil's Triangle and the anal sex reference and all the other stuff. Find them, feel them, fuck them, forget them. He also lied when he said And let me find his quote. He said, Dr. Ford's allegation is not merely uncorroborated, it is refuted by the very people she says were there, including by a longtime friend of hers. He said that. That is a lie. And he, as a judge, ought to know that he was lying. They did not refute her account. They said they did not recall the party. And I'm, because it was for them, nothing big happened. They didn't end up in a bedroom with Brett Kavanaugh on top of him, on top of them. They had no reason to remember the party. She didn't tell anybody about what happened. She just got out of the house. They didn't refute. That's a lie. He is a lying son of a bitch. The Renata Alumnias. My God. And here's what he lied straight to their faces about what that meant. We all know what it meant. Come on. He was bragging that he effed her. That's what he was suggesting. 
and probably untrue. Under oath, he said, that reference was clumsily intended to show affection and that she was one of us. But in this circus, the media's interpreted the term as related to sex. It was not related to sex, he said. As if screaming and turning red in the face would make that true. It of course, is related to sex. Four of his former schoolmates said that it was well known that they made sexual remarks about Renata and that the understanding at the time was that those yearbook references to her, not just on his page but under a picture of the football players, were boasts about sexual conquest. It was known. Can you imagine how privileged you must feel? To be able to lie like that. About little stuff. Why couldn't he have said, you know, I was an idiot 17-year-old boy? <laughs> Hardly a strange thing. And I wanted to show my, that I was, even though I was a virgin, I, you know, I pretended and I'm, and then you'd say, you know, I'm obviously have grown since then. <laughs> And I'm sorry for any harm I caused with my, yeah, blah, 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 blah. You admit it. You tell the truth. That is the basis of seeking justice. His whole life is about seeking justice, the title. Justice of the Supreme Court. That's the only justice he is seeking. And he will lie and do anything he has to to get there and to see the complicity of these Republican men is enough to make a person sick. We have a caller. I don't know that much has changed here, but let's give it a shot. Um, hello, caller. Nah, hi. Yeah, it's no good. Although all of a sudden I sound different. It's no good. I'm sorry. Okay, bye. And may I just say, fuck them. <laughs> that I, I mean, what was that? That all of a sudden my audio changed? Jesus H. Okay. I can't keep doing this, this monologue shit. Um, so it could be I'm going to disappear until they get this right. I just can't. I mean, it's not what you signed up for, I don't think. It sure as hell isn't what I signed up for. I can't remember which senator it was, but one of them, and it was toward the end, and he never got an answer, or she, was asking him, Kavanaugh, 
what all of this was telling boys. Everybody's talking about, you know, girls this, girls that, girls should know that this and that. What is, what are young men, young boys, what should they get from this tale? And he never answered. He, he, somebody did a thing about how looking at both of um, all the questions that came to both Ford and him, and they, they, you know, put a red line or something every time that they responded specifically to the question. In other words, did they answer the question or did they turn it like politicians do constantly? With her, it's just right down the road. She answered every question. And if she couldn't, she said, I, and apologize. I just don't know. I'm sorry. I can't help you there. You look at him. If you go through the transcript of his testimony and did he respond to the question, it's amazing. had to be like dragged out of him. And then given the little five-minute time limit, it meant he could stonewall enough with each uh, senator never to have to answer a question. By the way, was Matt Damon dead on? Dead on. I didn't watch it because I'm not a generally an SNL fan, but wow, that, that opener was uh, just <laughs> dead on. He absolutely, he looked exactly, I mean, to me, I wouldn't have known the difference. He was just perfect. Um, you know, our culture is constantly um, focusing on girls now and empowering girls, which obviously ne needs to continue to happen so they can deal with boys, but we don't talk to boys. We don't say to boys, hey, here is what you need to know. Here is what you need to do. And there are um, studies done that say that parents, this is on us, anyone who's ever been a parent, parents are vastly more likely to talk to their daughters about sex and uh, all kinds of things related to that, but to their sons? No. So boys aren't told much of anything, so where do they learn? Uh, about appropriate behavior as it relates to um, sexuality. Well, we know where they learn it. They learn it in locker rooms. They learn it in dorm rooms. They learn it at frat houses. And here is a high school junior in New England. Uh, this has to do with a book that a woman is researching. 
And she says, here's what one 17-year-old boy told me about how boys talk about sex. He says, it's not like guys say, dude, man, I made her feel great. That never happens, the kid says. It's always, I nailed her. I smashed her. I destroyed her. It all sounds less it it all sounds less than that they've had sex with them than that they've just uh you know almost uh destroyed them. So this is a high school boy saying that the way the boys talk about what you do with girls is is aggressive, assaultive F, 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 F. And then stop and think about it. Boys in our culture, they grow up in this constant hypersexualized culture where women are viewed um, everywhere as being uh, sexual objects. Here's a fascinating uh, little fact from the, a University of uh, USC research on G-rated movies. So the movies that little boys and little girls see. And if you look at the G-rated movies over the last 10 years, because that's all they were looking at, over two-thirds of all the characters who have a voice, who speak a line, over two-thirds are male in G-rated movies. And less than one-third of G-rated movies have <laughs> girls or women speaking. Also, what they found is the amount of skin that women show in a G-rated movie, is similar to that in an R-rated movie. And the girls and women are scantily clad in relationship to men who tend to be fully clothed. Um, another polling firm uh, says that half of boys say that several times a week or more they see female characters in video games presented as hot as and with unrealistic images of female bodies and it's never about their heads it's always about their bodies in television in movies in videos so we as parents have failed. Our culture is a cesspool of misogyny. My God, even G-rated movies, I, I find that fact so upsetting. And it's been suggested that one way to teach young men that their behavior matters is not to put Brett Kavanaugh on the court. 
that would be a very good teaching moment for the next batch of elitist prep school Ivy League boys who are now eyeing power and the Supreme Court, who come from the right families, who are following the playbook of uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Not putting them on the court would be a way to say, hey guys, your actions matter. And adults need to talk to boys about sexual ethics. About consent, about healthy relationships, about the risks of mixing alcohol and sex. We just assume that the girls will handle it. The girls will somehow be the gatekeeper. Why do we let boys abdicate responsibility? Why do we lower the bar for them? And this is what we get. A man who still could be sitting on this Supreme Court in a week or two. If we tell boys, hey, find them, feel them, fuck them, forget them. <laughs> Won't get in your way, baby. You can take an oath and lie right to the idiots in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> Roger writes, your phone issues. Is City Paper doing this intentionally? <laughs> We're not talking about super high-tech stuff here. Either make this a priority and fix the damn problem or just be honest with us that they don't want you to have a show. Thank you, Roger. I will forward that to certain individuals, okay? Mary writes, I watched John Oliver last night and he made a similar point as you have made. The Republicans, by putting this creep on the Supreme Court, will be saying that they, they just don't give a shit about women and women's issues. Straight up. Well, as I said also, I think on Friday, they made a calculation. They're willing to lose women. They're willing to lose young people. They're willing to lose Hispanics and African-Americans, they're willing to lose a whole bunch of people to get this court for the next 20, 30 years. Because that is all they're thinking. They are willing to lose the Congress, maybe even the White House, but they have the court. They, they have, they're packing the judiciary. They've always played a long game. They're also assuming that our anger and our attention that we are now paying will dissipate. And if they are correct in that assessment, then we deserve to lose.
Uh, what else we got here? Hang on while I. Um. Oh, I. I just, if I may bore you a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I might already have bored you a little bit. I don't know. Elliot Cohen. Uh, may, name might ring a slight bell. He. I can't quite remember all the things he did or was, but uh, he's a rocked-ribbed conservative. That's how I remember him. I think he was in maybe Reagan's administration. He might have been in one of the Bush's administrations. He is a rocked-rib conservative. And he wrote a piece in the Atlantic, Atlantic Magazine, that again might give us some hope. He is no longer a Republican because he said the Republican Party is not a conservative party anymore. I'm a conservative more than I'm a Republican, so he's left. And while he and you or I might not agree again, like that letter writer, on much politically, this is a guy who has not drunk the Kool-Aid. And it's, it really always makes me feel better to find out that there are these guys around. It, he excoriates the party for throwing everything that the Republican Party ever stood for, supposedly, out the window now. Personal responsibility, self-control, frugality, fidelity, honor, character, integrity, yeah. All abandoned. All abandoned. He said they threw frugality and fiscal responsibility away actually long ago, even starting in the Reagan years. But now on a stunning scale, we're heading trillion-dollar deficits now under these frugal Republicans. <laughs> it's beliefs in character and truth and fidelity, he says, gone when it embraced a liar, cheat, and philanderer as its nominee and then as its president. But he said something else snapped this week. So for him watching this Kavanaugh hearing was sickening. I guess if you're a conservative, it, it might, might be even more sickening than it is for us to watch. He talks about the 11 old men hiding behind the female prosecutor who they wheeled out and demeaned by calling her always female and female assistant and aide. And then he said it's Kavanaugh's own testimony that showed what conservatism, Republican style, has now devolved to. And here's how he says it. Kavanaugh's own testimony, it's self-pity, it's hysteria, it's conjuring up of conspiracies. It's vindictiveness. He and his family have no doubt suffered. 
But if we expect steely resolve from a police officer or disciplined courage from a firefighter, <laughs> we should uh, expect stoic self-control and calm from a conservative judge, even if his heart is being eaten out. No one watching those proceedings could imagine that a Democrat standing before this judge would get a fair hearing. This was not the conservative temperament on display. It was rather personalized grievance politics. This again, from a former Republican and rock-ribbed conservative. Americans watching the cranky maunderings of Senator Chuck Grassley and the spitting, menacing fury of Senator Lindsey Graham, he says, saw what conservatism, what republicanism has become. It is now a party of sour meanness. Almost all men who build walls to keep the world out, erect tariffs to destroy free trade, despise the alliances that keep Americans secure, and sanction the deliberate plucking of babies from their mother's breasts in order to teach illegal immigrants a painful lesson. In such a world, decorum and courtesy are irrelevant. Let me read one more paragraph here. Because again, this is coming from Elliot Cohn, rock-ribbed conservative Republican up until Trump took the party and he quit. There was always a dark side, he says, to American conservatism. Much of it originating in the antebellum curse of a society, large parts of which favored slavery and the extermination of America's native population. Favored. <laughs> Who favored the exclusion of immigrants from American life and favored discrimination against Catholics and Jews and gays. Many of us had hoped that the civil rights achievements of the mid-20th century, changing social norms regarding women, and, the rising levels of and that the rising levels of education had eliminated the germs that produced the Civil War, lynching, Indian massacres. But no. Those microbes simply went into dormancy. And now, in this nation and party of Trump, they have erupted again like a plague. Bitter, potent, and vile. He says he cannot imagine the Republican Party surviving. 
He doesn't know if another conservative party might come up. He says even Democrats should want that, should want a real, you know, and I, I do agree. One party rule is never, ever good, even if it's your party. So he sees the Republican Party as a dinosaur with some brain-eating disorder, but no higher mental functioning. And so he says it will plod into the future in which it is detested by women, African Americans, recent immigrants, and the educated young, as well as progressives. It might stumble into a political tar pit and cease to exist, or it might survive as a curious, decaying relic of more savage times and more primitive instincts, lashing out and crushing things, but incapable of much else. And quickly speaking of tearing babes from their mother's breasts, front page story in today's New York Times. God. In shelters throughout the United States, in New York City, in Kansas, who knows, maybe here even in Pittsburgh, migrant children who have been seized are being awakened in the middle of the night and hurriedly put on buses for what can be a days-long ride to a barren camp. on the desert of West Texas. Hundreds are being shipped every week. There is 1,600 children in this horrible place now, 20 to a tent. No toilets in tents. Porto Johns outside, no teachers to teach them. They are being shipped to this place 35 miles south of El Paso. It was opened in June for a capacity of 400 children. As I said, there are now over 1,600 there. I think that was the number, yes. And it is expected that it will expand to house almost 4,000 <coughs> children. They do it in the dead of night and awakening the kids so the kids will be discombobulated and less likely to flee. There are no schools at these places. There's nothing. They're just 
stuck. That is going on right now. You know, Senator Blumenthal, I think, said that at the hearing that this was not, I'm just going back to that because I remembered this. Even if you can't definitively say he attempted to rape a 15-year-old girl, what you can see is credibility. And so, Kavanaugh's lying to your face, my face, everybody's face, lying under oath, tells you all you need to know about his credibility. Whereas everyone, everyone, I haven't found anybody who did not find her credible. That's all you need to know right there. Laura writes, if a, li <coughs> if a liar tells lies often, they soon believe their lies to be the truth. They become the truth to the liar. I think you're right about that. Like other liars recently in the news, one can tell by the liar's body language. Unfortunately, many people are not good at reading body language. In this case, he was very defensive, near tears, which was very telling to me. I couldn't believe the news media comparing his tears to that of President Obama while giving a speech. They did. <laughs> totally different to have tears when moved by something that has happened to somebody else, <laughs> right? Then, which is why Obama was crying, than being tearful because you are feeling sorry for yourself for being caught in your lies. Laura continues, if Kavanaugh is confirmed, every woman needs to vote and vote out of office the Republicans who voted for his confirmation. If men have not been paying attention to why women aren't coming forward ah, at the time of assaults, then it's time for an uprising of women I must admit, I was so upset listening to Mrs. Blasey Ford that I couldn't continue. My heart was breaking for her to have to go through that trauma again. I agree with Roger regarding your phone issue. Your listeners count on your show. I just don't understand why the phones worked in August, but now they don't in September and October. Are the wires crossed? Surely there must be at least one competent person who knows how to fix this? If that person is not at the paper, perhaps an ad should be placed in search of such a person. Dorothy, I would like to join the list of unhappy listeners. Please forward to the powers that be. Why would your talk show technology work so well for so many months and then all of a sudden, <laughs> it was flawless for really quite a long time. 
From now until November, at least, we need you. Oh, you don't want me to go. All right, you can hear my voice, though. It's going. Henry writes, trust me, I am very concerned about the allegations against Kavanaugh, but not nearly as concerned as I am about the things he said in his testimony. The references to the Clintons, the comments about a left-wing conspiracy to kill his nomination. This is a Supreme Court nominee with an axe to grind. If there is one thing we demand from our Supreme Court justices, it is that they are open-minded and that we can trust them to be reasonably unbiased. Kavanaugh has shown us he is clearly not open-minded, nor trustworthy, nor unbiased. I agree. I totally agree. There was a special section in the, I think, the New York Times today about uh, women I and how the public sector and the private, s the private sector even more so, does not admit us into positions of power. Listen to this. The number of female chief executives in Fortune 500 companies, what percentage do you think it is? Women in Fortune 500 companies at the top. 5%. And that's down since last year. Twenty-five percent down. Women, it's got to stop. We gotta, we gotta just rise up. It's starting. We've gotta, we've gotta do it. Go all the way and never let this go. I can't take it anymore. We now know that women receive the majority of college degrees. Women hold more advanced degrees than men. Women make up more than half of the population. And yet women, even with their advanced degrees, must work four extra months to earn what their white male colleagues earned the year before. I'm sick of it. I'm so, and I am not alone. We are sick of it, guys. Kurt uh, writes, why the 24-hour news circuit doesn't think to share with us such media information? I'll never understand. Which is what? Judge's statement from the transcript of the hearing resulting in the order for you. The practice of separating these children was implemented without any effective system of, or procedure for tracking them after they were separated from their parents. The government readily keeps track of personal property of detainees in criminal and immigration proceedings. Money, important documents, and automobiles, to name a few, are routinely cataloged stored, tracked, and produced upon a detainee's release at all levels, state, federal, citizen, or not. 
yet the government has no system in place to keep track of or provide effective communication with and to promptly even be able to produce a child who is not a citizen, who they've taken. The unfortunate reality, this is from the judge's statement, the judge overseeing this. The unfortunate reality is that under the present system, migrant children are not accounted for with the same efficiency and accuracy as is property. Terry writes, amazing. We spent a year looking at a woman's emails and a week looking at a man's sexual assault. Yeah. Well, guys, that's it. <laughs> I'm done. I'm spent. I'm had. Um, and uh, thank you for your support. I will forward that stuff on, and I will, yeah. I'll put my foot down. But, of course, I'm a woman who's listening. See ya. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.